Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, it is tax season in the U.S. when some of us wonder why the government, which knows how much we earn, requires us to guess with the threat of prison if we guess wrong and leads some of us to ponder what we get in return for our resources. Streets and stop signs, to be sure, but also wars and wheelbarrows of money doled out to those who already have plenty of it. We've talked about taxes and tax policy a lot on Counterspin, enough to put together a walkthrough of some of the issues and the way news media explain them. You'll hear from Steve Wamhoff, from Dean Baker, Jeremy Greer, and Michael Mechanic. Taxes, and how they're not just an April 15th thing, this week on Counterspin. Donald Trump's tax returns have many wondering what they're doing wrong, was one cheeky headline from the fall of 2020, based on long-awaited reporting from the New York Times on the former president's tax avoidance. We learned that Trump paid just $750 in federal income tax in 2016 and 2017, and none at all in 10 of the previous 15 years, and that at one point he wrote off $70,000 for his hair. But corporate media presented it more as one man's shenanigans than a systemic injustice done to those not rich or powerful. In October 2020, we spoke with Steve Wamhoff, Director of Federal Tax Policy at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. It's clear that one of two things is going on. Either what Trump is doing is allowed by the law, and the law is really screwed up and needs to be changed, or Trump is breaking the law, and that shows that our enforcement of the law is deeply problematic. And that's a result of Congress defunding the IRS, gutting tax enforcement, and making it impossible for tax enforcement to keep up with people like Donald Trump. So one of, one of those things is happening, probably, quite possibly both of those things is happening. You know, Donald Trump is, he's using a lot of tax breaks, and he's using a lot of special breaks and loopholes to avoid taxes. That is a thing that wealthy business people often do. But Donald Trump, nonetheless, is in a league of his own. He really is extremely aggressive. He really pushes the tax avoidance tactics to the very limit and quite possibly beyond the limit of what the law allows. Well, let me just draw you out a bit on that. I mean, folks are getting a little hung up on he lost money. So that means he's a failure and not the success that he says he is. But the use of losses to avoid tax um, is is evidently his thing and, and not his alone. I, I wonder if you could give us a little bit of a primer on how that works on, on paper and then in reality. Right. So, you know, let's be clear about one thing. Donald Trump is a terrible business person. He <laughs> does have a lot of real losses, right? I mean, that, that's, that's just true, <laughs> right? But at the same time, Donald Trump is also a very wealthy person. He clearly has a lot of income. You know, when you see someone who lives like a billionaire for a decade and still gets away with not paying taxes in most years, you know that there's a problem with the system, right? Even if it is the case that he has a lot of ridiculous business investments that are complete failures and he does have a lot of losses. Now, it is the case that our tax rules have to have some kind of 
rules that recognize when a business person has a loss. I mean, the income tax is a tax on income. So if your business has losses and is not generating income, then we're not going to tax you mm-hmm. on, on business income. So there are some sort of rules we have to have in place to recognize that people can deduct losses. But those rules sometimes are overly generous to business people who can manipulate the system. And there are some particular types of rules that are particularly generous to certain types of business investors. So for example, the big real estate investors have some special rules that make it easier for them to use losses more quickly and more easily than other types of business investors. And we know that's a thing he's used in the past. In the 90s, he had enormous losses from some of his real estate ventures. The stuff that he's doing now may be a little bit different. Now he's involved in all these licensing schemes where he slaps his name on stakes or something. He's in a lot of different lines of business. But nonetheless, it's true that what we see is a person who's clearly wealthy, has income. He has all kinds of income from these licensing schemes and from The Apprentice and, and whatnot. But he's able to manipulate these rules and manipulate the losses from his other businesses to wipe out any tax liability that he would normally have. Well, and the real estate piece of that is a particular piece. And I know you just wrote about the 2017 tax bill with regard to using that kind of losses to offset gains thing. And there was a chance, there was an opportunity to kind of address that. And it was missed. Yeah. So there are all sorts of special breaks and loopholes for different types of investors, including real estate investors, that Republicans who were drafting the 2017 tax law decided not to touch. I mean, they could have used the opportunity to do a true tax reform, or they could have made the tax system a lot simpler. They could have removed all kinds of loopholes and special breaks, but they did not do that. The law overall was a big giveaway to wealthy individuals and corporations. Well, let me bring you back to something you touched on earlier in terms of systemic issues, you know, Willie Sutton said he robbed banks because that's where the money is, you know, and uh, I understand mm-hmm. it that the top 1% are responsible for the vast majority of unpaid taxes. But the IRS audits the super rich less than they do working class or low income people because, and I'll just paraphrase their position, is really hard, you guys. If we don't allow enforcement, if we don't fund enforcement, then all this talk about rules is almost just deflection. Exactly. There's two parts of this. You have to have rules that work, and then you have to enforce the rules. And this is just really its mind-boggling, frankly, that Republicans in Congress have decided that, you know, as part of their, I guess what you'd call anti-government ethos, Right. They decided to cut funding for the IRS. Now, you know, you can argue a lot about cutting different types of government spending, but cutting the IRS is particularly bizarre because it means you get much less revenue to pay for the rest of the government, right? So the Congressional Budget Office recently put out a report about this saying that if we just spent another $40 billion on IRS tax enforcement, that would actually end up raising another $103 billion that we would actually get by increasing our enforcement. So by not doing it, it's like Congress is sort of like walking away from more than $60 billion by not providing that funding, right? And that was an example that the Congressional Budget Office gave. And their report goes into the fact that, you know, from 2010 through 2018, Congress cut the IRS budget 20%, basically. And 
Um, that resulted in a staff reduction of 22%, and, and, and that resulted in a reduction of the tax enforcement staff by 30%. I mean, why would you cut the people who are collecting the revenue? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, we're not, we're not saving money by cutting the IRS. We're losing a lot of money. But that's what's happening. And over the years, one thing that's happened is the rate of audits has fallen for people at all income groups, but it's fallen more rapidly for the high-income folks. It just doesn't make sense. Like you said, if you're going to go where the money is, you would look at the, the wealthiest people. But, but that's not what we're doing because the wealthiest people are, in fact, they, they are complicated. When you're someone like Donald Trump, you can do so many complicated schemes that you can use to avoid taxes. It does require having very capable IRS enforcement staff on hand to be able to do that stuff. But instead, what we see is a shift to for IRS enforcement to do what's easier. And what's easier? Well, that's going after the low-income people who claim the earned income tax credit. And the earned income tax credit has so many complicated rules around it that a lot of people just accidentally make a mistake and they can get caught up by the IRS on that. And that's what the IRS seems to be shifting towards, focusing on that. It seems like completely unfair, completely nonsensical, and it doesn't even make any sense. You know, these, these IRS budgets, they're not saving us money, they're losing money, right? So none of it makes any sense. But one of the real-world consequences of that is, you know, someone like Donald Trump is probably getting by with things that he should not get by with. And we know for a fact that, for example, there's this dispute over this enormous tax refund of more than $70 million that the IRS is still looking at and has been since 2011. Why that has taken so long, who knows, but it could very well have something to do with the fact that the IRS is just deeply underfunded right now and understaffed. Well, and you have to look at, while you look at what they don't do, you have to look at what does happen because, you know, it's not just that, yeah, the shrinking the government means, of course, shrinking its ability to collect taxes, but also billionaires aren't just exploiting these loopholes. They have the political power to also create them. So it's it's right. coming. It's not just like exactly. laxity, you know. Um, right, yeah. right. And, and Donald, Donald Trump is not a passive bystander. Right. When these tax rules are created, I mean, we we have recordings of him testifying before Congress, defending tax shelters and saying that, you know, you should put tax shelters back in, in the tax code. Donald Trump was all about that, you know, back in the 90s. And, and he and the rest of the real estate industry were successful in getting Congress to put some tax shelters back into the tax code. So you, you can't say that Donald Trump is just doing whatever the law allows. Donald Trump was part of why this is in the law. In February 2019, Counterspin talked with Dean Baker of the Center for Economic and Policy Research about progressive taxation. New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had just presented the idea of a top marginal tax rate of 70 percent. And right-wing politicians and many in the media were suggesting that she might have just landed from Mars. So the reaction is, oh, here's flaky Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, where she get off 70%. And in fact, that's the number that many of the world's most prominent tax economists have said. This is the maximum tax rate, you could, maximum tax rate in the sense, maximum amount of revenue. And there was an article, widely read article, by Peter Diamond, who's a professor at MIT, and Manuel Saez, who's at Berkeley, both very, very prominent. Diamond won Nobel Prize, Saez, John Bates Clark Award, two of the most prestigious awards you can get in the profession. So these are people in very high standing. And they came up with that number. You know, and there were all sorts of qualifications. 
reservations and reservations. But in any case, they didn't think it was ridiculous. So when you have a, a fresh uh, new member of Congress propose that, well, the media jumped on that like, oh, she's just being flaky. And in fact, it's a very reasonable thing to put on the table, whether that's the right rate. You know, of course, you could debate that. But it certainly was not a ridiculous proposal. And, you know, again, uh, Paul Krugman, a very nice piece where he's contrasting that with the Republican proposals to cut taxes on the rich, where they were saying that they would pay for themselves, which was ridiculous. But that was treated like these are serious people. So it's been fascinating that there's been such a rush to dismiss these as kind of far-out proposals by radical leftists when they're reasonable proposals, which, again, is not to say that they're necessarily the best policy, but they're certainly reasonable proposals to put on the table and to be debated. Well, we read that Michael Dell, who has $30 billion or so at uh, the World Economic Forum, apparently said, name a country where that's worked ever, the 70% top marginal rate. Um missing something, <laughs> you could say. Yeah, of course, the, the, one of his co-panelists said the United States, because that was, in fact, the rate in the United States until uh, Ronald Reagan lowered it with his tax cuts in 1981. And if we go back a little further, it was 90% in the Eisenhower days. Kennedy had lowered it to 70%. So again, one could argue whether these are the best rates, but to treat this as a crazy uh, idea out of you know, far left field is just wrong. And, you know, some of the back and forth, because I was on Twitter with Dell and, you know, there were others involved, obviously. And what I find most striking here, the Dell's kind of a poster child here, because what is Dell's expertise in this area? He's very rich, no doubt about that, but he obviously knows nothing about tax rates. I mean, again, we could disagree 70% the right rate, but to act like that's just impossible, we're going to see our economy collapse, that's nuts. He knows nothing about it. He just has $30 billion, so therefore he thinks he's qualified to talk about it. <laughs> well, it's good, I think, that we're talking about taxing extremely high incomes and wealth for all kinds of reasons. The LA Times' Michael Hiltzik was saying, you know, it helps move us away from this notion that wealth is self-made, you know, that these folks owe nothing to society and it disrupts the fallacy of trickle-down. But having said that, it does take the form of a give-back. You know, you've got an absurd amount of money, so you should throw some back in the pot because that's the socially decent thing to do. You suggest in this recent piece for Truth Out that while that is not wrong, it's not getting to the crux, the bigger source of the rise in inequality. Yeah, so the point I made in that piece, and really I've made in much of my writings over the last you know, 10 or 15 years, is that the distribution of income is not something that just happens. It depends on how we structure the economy. And I would say the economy is pretty much infinitely malleable. We could structure it all sorts of different ways. And my favorite example here, just because it's so blatant, is I like to say... How rich would Bill Gates be if he didn't have copyright or patent monopolies on Windows software? So if anyone in the world could just start producing, mass-producing computers and copy in Windows and all the other Microsoft software, and they don't even have to send them a thank-you note. Well, needless to say, he would not be one of the richest people in the world. He wouldn't have $100 billion. I'm sure he'd do fine. But, you know, the fact that someone like Bill Gates could become incredibly wealthy was because of how we designed that market. And it's pretty much the same story everywhere you look. Finance, where would all these uh, Goldman Sachs guys be if we didn't have the bailout in a way and we just let the market run its course? I mean, there's many other ways we subsidize finance as well. Corporate CEOs, they were always well paid. But if you go back to the 
pay standards of the 60s and 70s, they'd be getting two or three million a year, not 30 and 40 million. So we structure rules that allow people to get incredibly wealthy. And I really prefer that to be the focus, both because as a practical matter, it's much harder to get the money back once they have it. I mean, there's all sorts of practical issues that people have rightly raised. You know, when Elizabeth Warren says, let's tax the wealth, well, they're not just going to hand it over to you. It's going to be hard to do. It doesn't say it's not something we might want to do, but it's going to be hard. And secondly, the political issue, if we act as though, well, you know, Bill Gates got that fair and square. We shouldn't take any of it back. If you go, well, we could have kind of structured it differently, and then Bill Gates won't have it, and then we don't even have to have this discussion. In 2013, ProPublica had just reminded us all of how strenuously and successfully lobbyists for TurboTax and H&R Block and others have derailed efforts to make paying your taxes easy and free, the way many other countries do it. Counterspin talked with Jeremy Greer, Vice President of Policy and Research at the Corporation for Enterprise Development, about how the tax code itself drives inequality and particularly racial inequality. When we think about income, and when we think about the interplay between income and wealth, there's a saying that we use here at CFED quite often is, income helps you get by, but wealth helps you get ahead. Mm-hmm. Wealth is the thing that really provides security for your family. It allows your family to think forward to the future, think about things like thinking about your child's education, their higher education, thinking about retirement, what are you going to do when you stop working? Mm-hmm. So while income is important, that provides the the resources for you to do that. Wealth is something that really provides you that security to think long-term. How that breaks down across the country as it relates to racial groups, you know, we did a study recently with the Institute for Policy Studies called the Ever-Growing Gap. And what we found is there is an incredible and really pervasive racial wealth divide and much more divided than when you look at it by income. If we were to do nothing, to change our policies or stop the trajectory, it would take African-American families 228 years to reach parity in wealth with white families and would take almost 80 years for Latino families to reach parity with white families. So we have a huge wealth divide that is even larger for households of color than there even is when you look at income. Well, I think some might think that the tax code favors the wealthy, but you say it's more than that, that the tax code drives inequality. How is that? It does. The tax code is really one of the mechanisms in which wealth is distributed across various income groups and across various ends that the country likes to see. Just in 2015, the federal government spent on wealth-generating activities through tax expenditures, through expenditures through the tax code, about $660 billion. To give you a sense of the scale of that, that is more than the combined budgets of 14 cabinet-level agencies. Well, when you break that down and say, well, who's getting that wealth? What you find is that the top 1% of taxpayers from an income standpoint, receive more than the bottom 80% of taxpayers combined. And we think that that's upside down. That is not how we think about how we make our investments. So where are these investments being made? They're being made in things like home ownership, 
You know, when you think about housing subsidies in this country, we tend to think about, you know, programs at the Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, public housing, Section 8, things like that. But actually, the largest housing subsidies come through the tax code. A little over $200 billion a year in housing subsidies are provided through the tax code to families, and most of them on the very high end. Things like the mortgage interest deduction, which accounts for about $100 billion in spending every year. State and local tax deductions, which account for a good share of the spending every year. So when you think about what's driving inequality, you know, I would say a federal system that is subsidizing the income and expenses and wealth at the high end at the expense of not investing at the low end is really exacerbating that divide. What's behind it? What's driving that policy? I would say the major thing that's driving it is special interests. When you look at our tax code system and you look where those benefits are being driven, it's in the places where there is a lot of lobbying dollars behind it. There's two major ways that people earn income in this country. You earn it by wages. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to your job, you get paid by an employer, and that's the exchange. Another way that people earn income in this country is through investment. You take your money, you put it in certain types of interest-bearing accounts, and you get a return on that investment, and that income comes back to your family. Well, the tax code taxes that in different ways. They tax your income at the high end at about 40%, and they tax that investment at the high end at about 20%. So basically what we're saying is that we will take a special and prioritize tax benefits to people that get investment income. And essentially, that is at cost to the government. So why is that? Well, people that get investment income happen to be on the high end. Only about 1% of the country makes investments in the stock market other than through their retirement. And those are the people that are in Congress lobbying to make it that way. So when you think about the priority of prioritizing investment income over wages, A lot of that has to do with who's um, lobbying the Congress to make it that way. Taxes, we understand, while often presented as personal, are truly political. Whenever media ask, can we afford it, they're invoking a sense in citizens that there's a direct line between our annual contribution and the society the healthcare, the infrastructure, the general well-being we see around us. The cruel joke, of course, is that some of the people in charge of determining who owes what can't remember how many houses they own. But they're somehow super mad about the societal contribution of people living in cardboard boxes. It's a big picture problem that media sit at the center of. We talked early this year with Michael Mechanic, senior editor at Mother Jones and author of the book Jackpot, How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. I asked him about that conversation that disconnects our recognition that the U.S. has people in life-or-death struggles living right alongside some that are incredibly, obscenely wealthy, and whether or not reporting on tax policy might help clarify things. I will admit that at some points when I'm writing, I I fall victim to that same thinking of the affordability thinking. And I've had people call me on it, you know, um, 
people who are really obsessed with this issue say, hey, you should read this and this. Uh, but, you know, it's, it, to some degree, it's really true. When I talk about the tax code to people, I, I say it's, it's really a moral document. It's mm-hmm. a list of our society's priorities, what we ask people to pay and what we give in return and to whom. And the way it's been structured for quite a long time is to give more to people who already have to the people with passive capital. Say you have $20 million in excess of your house and your needs, and you put that in the stock market, that's passive capital. And so you make a lot of money off that. You're taxed at a much lower rate than the money you get from a paycheck from working. And, you know, people try to rationalize this in various ways. And one of the things I hear people say is, well, you know, you have to incentivize investment, blah, blah, blah. And I say, what are they going to do with that money? Are they going to keep it under their mattress Mm -hmm. if you raise the tax rates? I don't think so. Biden wanted to raise the capital gains tax rate, which is what you pay on those profits from an asset you buy and then later sell. He wanted to raise it to the same rate as ordinary wages. And uh, that wasn't part of the Build Back Better thing. And, of course, that whole thing just didn't fly. The New York Times actually did some great reporting on this about the sort of revolving door between the wealth management finance world and the Treasury Department. Mm-hmm. And so you have this sort of people coming in and out of that industry, and that industry lobbies heavily to keep all these tax advantages for the wealthy. And so it's very hard to get rid of them. And then they leave government, they go back to the firms, they get rewarded for it. In my reporting, I've come across a lot of so-called progressive, extremely wealthy people, and they say, hey, I think we should be taxed more. And I'll say that publicly, and there are even some groups that exist calling for changes in policy to make the tax code fairer to you know everyday people and to tax the wealthy at greater rates. But then on the backside, these people are enlisting the wealth industry to manage their money, and the wealth industry is lobbying to keep those advantages. So you're sort of having it both ways. You get to be the good guy, and you're helping the bad guys. We ended it there with that attention to actual human beings. That was Michael Mechanic. Before him, you heard Jeremy Greer. Before that, Dean Baker. And first of all, Steve Wamhoff. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. You can find all of these interviews in their entirety on our website, FAIR.org. And that website, FAIR.org, is also the place to show much-needed support for the show if you are able and so inclined. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.